We all encounter different experiences as we live and learn. These cool moments shape us into the person we are today. Kia ora guys, welcome to Car Talks with Scotty, the podcast version. Follow along as we open those moments and experiences because our moment starts now. Kia ora guys, how are ya? I, oh, I hope you're well, you're staying safe out there and you've managed to lend a helping hand to someone who needs it most. Serving that cause and purpose, guys, higher than yourself, eh? So, have you or someone you know experienced the loss of a loved one to suicide? Have you ever had those questions of why? After hearing that someone you know or have heard of has just taken their own life. What do we need to know and understand about being victims of losing someone to suicide? Well, on today's episode on Car Talks with Scotty, the podcast version, we will be talking about the ugly truth and effects of suicide and peering into the window, talking about this very deep emotional and tragic topic that is becoming a mass epidemic for many individuals and families out there not just here in little old Aotearoa in the South Pacific with a population of only 5 million people but the world but before we go further please beautiful people of the universe be warned that this episode contains explicit real-life accounts of real people's situations and may contain offensive language and some really difficult, tough, and emotional experiences which may be disturbing for some listeners. If you're feeling these effects or are at risk of suicide, please call your local emergency mental health and triage team or Google for your local lifeline support service because you're worth it but first off before we dive on in we're blessed to have another special guest with me in the studio joining us here on car talks with scotty the podcast version she is a beautiful strong maori wahine a maori woman an educator and suicide campaigner a dedicated wife and a mother who lost her beautiful 21-year-old daughter to suicide on May 10th, 2017, a day she says that labelled her a victim and her daughter now a statistic. So I'd like to welcome my dear kare friend and whanaunga, Cheryl Waru. Kia ora, Cheryl! Kia ora, kia ora, kia ora! (laughs) Oh, tēnā koe kare, thank you for coming in. Very welcome. You and I both know that it has been not only a a cause that that's affected us both personally um yourself more so but it's something that tends to be growing and getting worse out there yeah so i guess one of the things around this and for those that are listening um firstly and here's another disclaimer so cheryl is a phone of mine and her daughter who she will explain and talk about very shortly, is actually my niece. And I was their funeral director from Tipeny Funerals that you've seen on the Casketeers on Netflix and wherever you are in the world. Um, so this is a massive topic and I really appreciate you being here and helping to shed some light 
on a subject that is either too scary or too taboo for many people but yet it's something we need to understand and talk about so my first i guess my first question about all of this is how are you holding up so um it's been three years this year will be three years so in 2017 Mm. And the first 12 months for for anyone, especially a parent that loses a child, is always the testing time. So mm. the mm. first 12 months is getting through the first of everything mm. and then mm. coming to grips with what you don't have anymore. Mm. So it is pretty, it's pretty much the worst time in your life mm. and it's about building from there onwards. Mm. Mm. So... Yeah. What is the question you ask someone around, you know, you genuinely want to know how somebody's doing, so, but how do you ask them? How do you ask them when they when you know that this is the state that you've come from? I think for parents, um, the worst thing you can do is ask them, mm. um, you know, how you're doing, because it's probably the question that, that they've heard for the thousandth time. Mm, mm. And my suggestion for people out there that do want to genuinely understand and support a person mm. or a parent that's lost their child to suicide is to not ask, is to show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actions do speak louder than words in mm. many cases, and sometimes the words get misinterpreted. Um, for being nosy, and mm. even though <laughs> even though you're you're genuine about being caring, and your questions are purposeful and meaningful, mm. but at that time, you know, there's one thing that for us parents that are going through the motions of grief is that all kind of all kinds of normality really go out the window, mm. and it's about survival. That's a good that's a good segue because one of the things that I was going to ask is what is your new normal. Is this your new normal, and what does that look like? Yeah, it is, it is my new normal, and I think I'm lucky. Um, well, I wouldn't say lucky, but many many of our whanau that take their lives, they don't leave behind a why. When Chanel, when she passed away, she left behind a letter, and mm. we got to understand through her lens why. Mm. But many, many parents don't get that. And I think one of the beautiful yeah, things that my point. daughter did was she told, she wrote that uh, for my husband and I to live our best lives. Mm. And, you know, you'd always carry that guilt around. As much as people say in hindsight you couldn't have done anything. But that doesn't stop a parent from feeling like a failure that they weren't there to save their yeah, child. Yeah. So ultimately, for us, for my husband and I, it, the saddest thing for us is that our daughter died alone. Mm-mm. So, yes. So she she left behind a letter, and yeah. that did that was that letter enough to explain why, how, what? So with the letter that Chanel left behind, and I'm going to get you to talk about who she is and what she's about. What was her why? So Chanel felt that. Um, I think she put too much pressure on herself, or maybe her, her, uh, us as the whānau put pressure on her. Um, she was the kind of girl that grew up in accelerate classes. She did A's throughout her schooling. She was in leadership roles. So she, so she lived the all Aotearoa, um, the dream of being a Māori woman mm. in our education system from an early age. Mm. She, she ticked all those boxes. So for myself, I, I found I was pretty average at school, mm-hmm. and she was above average. Mm-hmm. And her dad is a very smart 
guy, so at least she got something good from him. <laughs> oh, Anna's high. Um, so for for her, she she put an enormous amount of pressure on herself. But it, you know, we played our part in that too as a Fano because we had expectations of her, which you know um, caused her to isolate herself, and she became lonely. So. Mm. Her corded on her letter talked about how she felt she couldn't do things right, mm. and that even though in a house full of people she was still lonely. Yeah, right. And yeah, well, it, it's, a lot of things came to light around the way that she was feeling. She did keep to herself. She was very mm. private mm. Um, about the way she was feeling, and you know you can't help but um, treasure your children as much as possible mm, mm. so here's me thinking that my daughter the world is her oyster and that mm. she knew that and I, I also thought that this is a child that had everything she didn't need for nothing she yeah. had everything every gadget you can imagine which sometimes I used to think she was a bit too materialistic <laughs> but that's how we raised her yeah yeah but she she wasn't in the end you know she was prepared to leave everything behind everything that was precious to her mm. in this world she had no hesitation in leaving it behind that's interesting because there's a common theme with many of the the cases that i have dealt with where Farno who have taken their own life um there's these categories in terms of what's defined them uh, to make that action and some of these categories often fall into the um, spouse separation issue the finding my identity issue um, feeling unloved issue or the I guess that part of being isolated from the world and seeing something so different and a common theme in that has been isolation so when we go, when we talk about isolation for some of those who are probably feeling the effects, probably even now while some people are listening to this, what is it that we should know about or what is it that we should be doing um, so that people don't feel like that? Yeah, I think it's, it's really hard because suicide in itself does, it takes on many forms. Yeah. So you, like with Chanel, um, we did not know. We had no idea. She'd been through it with me and my students in my class mm-hmm. who had taken their lives. So she knew. She knew the repercussions of mm-hmm. what happens afterwards. She saw the mother crying yeah, over the, yeah. their son's casket. Mm-hmm. So she knew what the impact would be. Yeah. So one thing that I learnt throughout this whole ordeal was it's not really always just about the immediate whānau, it's the extended cousins and the best friends and the Mm. friends of friends. So you see a wave of emotions coming Mm. over throughout the tangihanga process. Mm. And I knew that there needed to be some kind of chicken with each other and I think whānau we have to own that Mm -hmm. you know it's not just a here's the tangi three days later we've buried them life goes on Mm -hmm. well it doesn't go on Mm -hmm. and and I didn't realize to the extent of the pain and anguish from her departure Mm -hmm. that it had on so many other people and we take that for granted yeah yeah it's the ones that won't talk and and you know I had nephews and nieces that will open up and talk with me 
or, mm. or say this is how I'm feeling auntie you know and I don't claim to be a counsellor and I don't think that's my role either mm. but I'm not about to just hand them over to anybody yeah yeah, yeah for sure so we we did a check-in just so that I check in with everybody mm. um, at the rangatahi of our whanau because the stats are really high especially with our Māori yeah, men absolutely. And, it's, and it's not decreasing no. and the hardest thing is that we have and this is my opinion is that we have the I am hope and mm. all the other rubbish that's out there that's talking about you know suicide prevention but have they prevented anything no they haven't mm, mm. and and all the putia that gets put into these initiatives where's it going for counseling why do we have to pay to mm. for somebody's ears yeah 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 you know why do our why do our people have to go through the politics of what's appropriate and what's not appropriate mm, mm. and especially is why is it run by people who are not directly affected mm. through suicide who know exactly what's going on so that's what's hard for men and I don't want to trash anybody but I'm just going to keep it real yeah yeah totally so you know when when after Chanel passed away I didn't want to put the burden on my family so I tried to reach out and we mm. didn't have any Māori initiatives on Uncle Google yeah. for suicide. <laughs> so yeah. that's the first place you go to. And it was really difficult because you have um, frameworks around here that don't, that are not applicable to who I am as a Māori. Mm, mm. And it's not out there. Like you have the um, youth line and you have the, you know, the suicide line and you call the, call these people, but it just doesn't work for us. Mm, and mm. especially for us Parents, mm. it doesn't work, and you have the made-up groups along the way, but you don't hear about them till about you know a way after yeah, the yeah, fact. For sure. So we have the neon lights over the likes of I Am Hope and um, John Kerwin and the mm. depression stuff, but where's the neon lights for dealing with our Māori whānau using mm. runga? Where mm. is the um, supports and around that? Unless you know mm. an auntie mm. who knows mm. a korona karawa mm. from somewhere else, mm. you cannot navigate that on your own mm. and even with fun order so you know it's it's just such a hard thing to get into with regards to suicide and that's probably why I'm more resilient now mm. because I didn't get the support I needed I ended up going to a Pakia just so I can unload on them yeah, yeah, totally. and not put it on put the burden on my fun and I wasn't comfortable about that mm. but I did it anyways because because I needed to release or else mm. I would have been one of those statistics and thought to hell with this world if you're not going to look after me catch you up later yeah yeah totally so what is it that you would be looking for um, either yourself as a parent or anybody out there that's lost somebody to suicide what do you think from your perspective you would be looking for in a service provider what what does that look like so the initiative needs to be in place or actioned from the very beginning as soon as whānau are told mm -hmm. your loved ones passed away there should have been there should have been kaitiaki around that Mm, and mm. the kōrōai of Aroha put around us whānau mm. because what I experienced in living in central Auckland was the worst experience of my life mm. and I had nothing there was no victim support there was no wraparound service oh, for me wow. but but yet they um, an ambulance turned up a fire engine turned up and goodness knows how many cops turned up mm, to mm. get into my little flat so but no one was there for supporting my husband and I they were there to get the information because it was a process mm, that they were following mm. and I think the process was a crap process mm. there should have been a kaitaka wainga in there that mm. came in to navigate for the whanau but I was lucky 
I was very, very lucky that I had a very skilled mm-hmm. and a very compassionate whanau member yourself that supported us throughout oh, that process. Thank you. Thank you. Or else I would have cracked up and may have been arrested. <laughs> yeah, probably. Sure. Probably. Uh, that was because that was an emotional, that was a very hard night. I couldn't come away from that night. Do you know what I mean? Oh, and, absolutely. Um, and I, I don't think I'll ever forget it, to be honest. I don't. I think that's going to be ingrained and engraved in my memory bank for the rest of my life, my waking life. Well, you saw more than I did. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, so for some of you that are listening out there, um, as I made mention before, Chanel is actually my niece. Cheryl is my whanaunga, my cousin. Um, and at the time, I was, I was their funeral director. And that particular evening when I got the call to go through, um, come and see yous, um, all, interestingly enough, I, everything I knew, everything I learnt, everything that I was an expert in, um, and did really well and had been known in terms of being a funeral director in the industry, I, all of that went out the window, and I was armorless i was shieldless i was vulnerable i was i was naked if anything i was i was naked from this whole concept of knowing what i knew and all of that went out the window and what i have to acknowledge is in that process despite knowing that there were some processes that processes that i could kick into place um as i have to acknowledge my team then you know um it was one call and this person lives you know where you lived at the time this person lived at least 20 minutes away and yet she was there in 10 minutes and i thought i'm not even gonna ask how you did that because <laughs> right now i'm Listen. still your manager <laughs> thanks denise hey <laughs> eh? people who've seen denise on the show will know who she is well i tell you she can she can pull some strings out there in traffic world <laughs> um yeah and so you know she was there and then on top of that then i had francis turn up as well and funnily enough i with him <laughs> little hua <laughs> When I first told him that I was on my way to a Fano um, suicide, he says, "Okay, well, I'll be there. You know, give me, send me the address of where I'm going to be there. I'll be there for you." And I said, "No, just leave me alone. I just need to understand what's going on first, and then I can put in place an action plan." That was, you know, that's a thought, because we're so used to thinking on our feet while we're there that we can pull almost anything. But for me, I didn't feel that it was a fair process because they were not only i was not only taking them away from their space and their whanau to come and be with me and do their role but at the same time that was unfair on the whanau and use you know at that time and i said no you need to hold back i will ring you when i need to and you know what the hua did he gps me <laughs> and that's how he ended up smack bang at the address <laughs> so that you know so all of these things happened and they're constant reminders of that moment in time one thing about car talks with scotty the podcast version is actually talking about those moments and experiences Mm, yeah tell us about chanel 
Chanel. Oh, Chanel. So. Chanel TK Waru. Chanel Takota Waru. <laughs> I think Chanel, she was a law unto herself <laughs> in, in Alfano. She was a such a happy child, eh? Mm. She, there was nothing that would get past that girl, and she was like that when she grew up too. So she pretty much was my eyes and ears mm. and kept me up to date with everything. But Chanel, she um, she had a love for people, especially mm. for her um, her nannies and her kuros mm. and her, sib- and her siblings. Maybe her waiter was siblings. And her cousins were all her siblings. She had that brotherly and sisterly love with mm. with everybody and she she had great leadership skills and and I think I miss this the most about her because she was very independent. Mm. She didn't rely on anybody to to do her what she needed to do. Mm, mm. And she just had a fair love for everybody. Yeah. But mind you, get on her bedside and you you were done. Your oh, relationship yeah. is over. <laughs> and she felt funnily enough, she felt that about everybody. Um when when a relationship's over, it's over. Mm. But what got what got asked was that when we got her letter back, mm. um she had left all her passwords on her letter. Mm. And all these years, her password was um, her password to some of her stuff was the birth date of oh. an old boyfriend. I yeah, no yeah. way. Yes way. That's what I was thinking. I was like, uh, excuse me, and then seeing that you know. So this is how private she was, and that when her heart got broken, because it did, it got broken like maybe four or five years prior to her dying. She still held a candle. For this young man who has gone on with his life, oh, so that's wow. really sad. Yeah, that is. That pr- that brings a whole new picture into the scene around the emotional yeah. um, baggage and re- rejection. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and funnily enough, no one would have known that because nobody. This, you know, this woman was somebody who walked into the world perceived, by the way, to have had a big smile on her face the biggest eyes that you just want to stare in because they were deep and somebody who who appeared and she did don't get me wrong she loved unconditionally and so from that and now i feel like this is an assumption from that this girl's got it this girl's got it together she's look at her she's confident she's beautiful inside and out And then you hear that, and that says that there's some emotional baggage that she's carried through. Do you think, Cheryl, that may have contributed to some of that mentality and that that decision-making? Oh, absolutely. I I think that all the time. You know, she's carried this around. (laughs) Surprise! Oh my god! <laughs> I'll only speak about it here. Yeah. I haven't spoken about it anywhere else. Wow! So for her, when we when I found that out with her passwords, it sort of gave me an insight to her world. Yeah, totally. And I think one of the things that she got from her beautiful mother was that when you do love, yes. you love forever. Mm, and that's something that that's I true. I never realised. But a couple of weeks prior to that was the first time that she'd spoken about him to me. Mm. And I thought, I just shrugged it off, like I did with everything else that happens, because Mm. I thought, 
Yeah, was that's that old difficult news. moment though? Was that a difficult moment oh, yeah. hearing that? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Yeah, okay. See, because I mean, I think any parents when they're con- confronted by their own children around, um, confronted with their own children around um, what it is that you know they're going through in life. I think as as parents, I believe it's not really what you want to hear you know oh no <laughs> you're like get get with it you're 21 year old now you know <laughs> like i knew what i was doing at 18 come yeah. on girl <laughs> but we raised her different you see we, yeah, we provided for her and i think one of the things that we as parents need to own is that you know you want to give your child independence mm. but you can't just cut them off like that mm, mm, mm. You, you hear about mental health issues and they're and it's not even a denial, is that she didn't suffer from mental health issues. She suffered greatly through emotional, um, her own emotional health issues. Mm. And she saw couples break up. She saw Mm. her parents go through their own BS in Mm. this world, you know. It gave her less faith in Mm. finding love when I think about it, you know. Mm. And I'm not even making the assumption because if my girl is anything like me, I would have thought the same. You know, you, yeah. you witness all this kind of stuff in your life and then losing her kuros and, you know, mm. the one the people that she loves the most. Mm, mm. You know, so she she knew she knew exactly what she was doing. She mm. um she understood the consequences. Um so she was very articulate in the mm. way that she did things. So yeah, I, I sort of wanted to get away from the mental health um, and it's not even a stigma that I'm ashamed of. Mm-mm. And it's just like suicide, I'm not ashamed of that. And I did hear Fano members say, after she, maybe about the first three weeks, they'd get the, what happened to her, you know, and then I'd hear the, she was sick. She mm. was not sick mm. at all. And it was, we have to start identifying as Māori that it is not an issue where it is a Pākehā issue. Mm. It's an issue where it's an emotional issue. And we can't own, own those emotions mm. because they're not ours to own. This is universal. It it's is. Massive. It is. Mm. And, and why are our people doing it? Well, there's a, there's a myriad of reasons why mm. they're doing it. But what are we doing to support our people? I also have to ask too, because I mean, I guess my experience of... of hearing different stories i mean that's one thing when you're a funeral director is that you learn the secrets you're the you're the gatekeeper of many secrets that the deceased tell you and i'm not you know for those of you listening you're like, well, how are they gonna tell you that you know they're not sitting up on the table being like hey scott i've got something to tell you <laughs> really <laughs> yeah Um, But there are stories that unfold and you get to draw probably the deepest conclusion than anyone else in that whanau. It's your job. It's your job. It's your role. It's your duty of care to maintain the secrecy of that deceased. Is is that when they do tell tell you these stories and you start to understand and gather the information, I think there's a lot around what we have taken for granted as living members of whānau to that person and what I mean by that is that there's so much that we presume or have assumed to know that we think we know better than the person who's just taken their life does that make sense yeah and I think what we for what we fail to do is do the simple task 
of compassion and kindness and to turn around and say how what do you think how are you feeling are you okay yeah because i think there's one thing that i've learned um of dealing with that much death in that period of time is from that moment forward for the rest of my life i'll never turn my back on somebody who's put their hand up saying i need help or somebody who turns around and says i need an ear to listen you know to listen to me because that's that's an extremely tough moment especially if you're not prepared for it and you have to put all your shit in your bag and say oh i i can't deal with you just yet sorry i've got my own shit going on no it, it's it's time it's time for you to put your shit aside and have a listen absolutely and this is why i always start and end vlogs blogs anything that i write or say with lend a helping hand to someone who needs it most because you never recognize what's in front of you the person who needs you then and so that takes me back to where with chanel were there signs that you saw that could have led you to believe or led you to understand or led you to even recognize mum i just need i just need an ear yes yes and it started when she was eight years old oh wow when, yeah so back then back then so i should have known then that mm. she was reaching out for help um so Chanel cut her eyelashes and shaved off her eyebrows and that should have been an indicator. <laughs> that should have been an indicator to me that there was an issue. Mm. So I thought it was more like a, she's just been rebellious and she's just seeking attention, which I went the opposite way. So, you know, be forewarned, whanau. Don't mm. go the opposite way because it's going to affect them when they get older. And I think one of the hardest things was is that she was constantly teased by Fano mm. and by friends and by people at her school around her eyelashes and her eyebrows and she endured that kind of bullying which throughout her primary school days mm. through her intermediate and then through her high school days you know oh feel bad man god I do <laughs> far out so we I, I, th I know I was one of them <laughs> I bloody know I was one of them. Well, I used to think, you know what? You idiot. You have the beautiful, most beautiful eyes. But that was then, that was her cry for help. And it's funny because, well, it's not funny. Ironically, prior to her dying, about three or four weeks prior to that, she went and saw our GP and she talked to him about wow. when it started back in, with her eyebrows. And this is, this is less than a month before she passed away. Mm. So this is how, she's 21 now, so this happened when she was eight. She was never one to say, Mum, such and such is teasing me about my eyebrows or my eyelashes. She never, she just took it mm. and she put it in her back pocket and she carried it around for the remainder of her life. So wow. it's not a blame on anybody. And, and you know, just no, I no. feel like 13 reasons why. Oh, yeah, do you know you'll, what I you'll mean? get your CD very soon. Yeah, yeah. See, <laughs> 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 so, so I couldn't have done this about two, three years ago. No, There's no way. There's no. no way I would have done it. But it was that corridor around that. So, throughout her life, 
you know she was always critiquing herself but never she never did it with volume and that's probably you know with me you can hear me coming before you see me but for Tons. her <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that's her water side <laughs> all my side have got they got fat feet and you can hear them stamping on the ground but that's because it's tiny wakato to be precise so for for her it was like that so she the poor child you know she's mm. she was in two worlds and an only child syndrome i'm not sure if i could label her that but that was part of her kitty of why you know this world was too much for her mm. and at a time you know she was six months out from getting her degree the first in our family mm. in her gen to get her degree and then you know both of us were studying together and the weekend before she passed away I went over her 4,000 word essay that I highly commended because I was like who wrote this you know it was mm. really academic but mm. that was just her way of doing things my way was obviously different I learnt <laughs> I learnt to it properly plagiarism yeah. <laughs> well copy and paste what's wrong with copy and paste <laughs> You've created yeah. it. <laughs> you put it on Google. It's, it's a fair game. But like she, she that was her, and she all she was always hard on herself. And you know, where do you think that comes from? Our side, the, the way that I was raised. Your mum's side. Um, yeah, I, I we were always wanting to strive for the best, and we yeah. did what we needed to do to get there. I have to admit, like um, your family are very impressive. Um, and oh, that's that's actually a perfect word to use. Very impressive, because you hold your heads high. You know, and I mean the portaifano. Um, hold your heads high. <laughs> um, you know, uh, you are very astute in the way you carry yourselves, and then also on top of that, there's this this presence of um, being. You know pride when you all walk together and it's it's beautiful it was there from day one and one of the things that i guess i've always considered as to in terms of my thoughts around why i have that opinion or why i feel that that's an impression is because these are all educated as well so there comes a lot of pride in that so it, it does is that something that stems back before your your parents yeah yeah oh. so so our, our nan she she was in that year of schooling where you couldn't speak to deal and she yeah. she had the all got the strap across the hands and that caught it all so with our nan she um always made that uh, education was a priority for our gen right. because she didn't get that opportunity and then she became a mother of 12 so again, you know, juggling her children around in that capacity, having a husband over in the ward. Yeah, sure. You know, so that was, her life was based around family. But mm. when we came along, she knew that we wouldn't survive in this world without a good education and she pushed that. So she pushed and pushed, made sure that we got everything that we needed for school. Mm, mm. And she was one of the ones that, you know, you wanted to do your best so that she'd be proud of you. And, and I think this is a continuation throughout the genes. So Chanel was the same, that she wanted to do her best so that her grandmother would be proud of her. Not her mother, she can care less. This is interesting because I think what you're unravelling here, Cheryl, is um, something that is universal 
it's a universal language that has been adopted from every family in this in the world where there are there are, i'm not saying every family excuse me but where there is an expectation set and without realizing it we're emotionally blackmailing our children absolutely to con- to conform in such a way and it's silent language isn't it it's mm-hmm. really silent language and we're ex- we're creating these false this false sense of expectation, this false f- sense of representation, and we're making people become more less authentic with themselves and more authentic with being fake. So, in order to impress the generations before us, if not the 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 public view, you know what people perceive. I mean, social media does it every day right mm-hmm. social media you've got um facebook instagram instagram is the biggest um where people can take with a filter a photo that shows i'm happy but deep down inside right now in this very hour in this very second i feel like absolute crap absolutely so this i, I wow this is kind of blowing my mind <laughs> thank you very much <laughs> So, do you feel that that's, that's something that Chanel took on board? That she's taken some of those expectations, that silent view of impression? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I, I, I honestly do. But I also felt that she was able to wear her authenticity of herself, too. I think that's, a, that's the thing with Chanel, though, is that everything she did, it was like minus touch for her. So, she was successful at everything she did. Mm. And, um, you know, people like her mum, we had to work really hard to get to this, you know, academically we had to work extra hard, but she didn't have to work extra hard, Mm. but she still felt that she had to be a certain way in order to be loved. That that was, that was what I, that's what I got from her letter and that's what I got from her when you think about it. Mm. It was about her wanting to be loved and if she didn't feel loved... Then that was just another notch as to why she shouldn't be here. What, in, in hindsight, what what did what does that look like? What does love look like from her perspective? From your thoughts? Yeah, I think what love looked like f- through my lens for her, love looked like the acceptance of being around her all the time. Mm. You know, and she didn't have like I grew up with friends, you know, and I've still got mm. my friends that I grew up with. They're still my friends now, mm. and their children, mm. etc. So she didn't have, she had two best friends in the whole world, and that meant the world to her. And and they all lived their lives. Mm. And she, it was never a, this is my friend Joey that's come into this, that, you know, and I've known yeah. him for years. She never had those kinds of friends that she'd bring home. And that's probably because her father and I, we always, um, we may not have provided her a home that was, that she felt that mm-hmm. she could do that because... Yeah. You know, I didn't like strangers in my house. (laughs) Because, you know, I've grown up seeing what happens when people come in your house and they ruin the dynamics. So I've always had that. So, yeah. So maybe her way of thinking was that there was an acceptance Mm. um, for who she was. Mm. And and that's pretty much all I can say about her way of thinking. Do you think that that was her then? After now that we're you know we're talking after the fact in memory of, do you think that the person that she represented 
her external shell was authentically her. Yes, I do. Yeah? Yep, okay. I do. I do. That's good. Yeah. That's good. It's just, it, she was very crafty and good at wearing different hats. Yeah. 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 So, building up to the time when she did pass away, I knew there were things bothering her, but, you know, I'd ask her. Like what? No, you just knew by the way she knew. talked, the way okay. she acted, how she was. She's a little off kind of thing. Yeah, but she it was never unusual because she'd she'd get in her, her moods because you know her womanly was mm. never regular and it was always an issue okay. for her. Yeah, yeah. So we all know that with the woman's womanly yeah, um, yeah. comes emotional blackmail, emotional boundaries, <laughs> yeah. you know, an occupational health therapy and all that kind of stuff. And hazard. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I sort of stayed away from that because I'd ask her, what's going on? You know, tell mum about it. But, you know, she just wouldn't. So I wasn't going to have that fight with her that morning. Yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 sure. I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't going to do it because I was running late for work. So in 2018, is it 2018 you wrote your experiences? I did. In a publication called The Shameless Pain. Tell me, what made you write of your experience? So when I talked earlier about there were no supports that were mm. applicable to me, the only way I could get things off my chest and my thoughts was to write it down. So actually that publication was my draft. So oh. it was, ne- in my mind, it was never meant to go straight to publishing. Sure. So I sent it through for a review and they decided to publish it because they wanted to keep it in its rawness. So... As, wow. as OCD I, as I yeah. am with my writing, I know there is like lots of flaws in there, but people saw past those flaws and saw the totally. message. Totally, yeah, was, absolutely. And it was like, I, I read it now and I think to myself, oh, there was a part there that was, I'm so emotional and that I never put it down. Mm. I, I just kept writing and writing. Then I'd get, I went through all the seasons in mm. one day. So I, I went to, through the mad phase in the sad phase and I think I'm ashamed mm. phase and then it's like the whānau phase but I'm glad I got it all down and out because through that writing came an understanding and, and what I didn't want people to do mm. is um, feel sorry for us because it doesn't do anything for our soul No. So and then you, you go through the motions of meeting people for the first time and they mm. say and how many children do you have so my husband and I have we've gone through this Okay, we know what to say, so we've rehearsed mm. it all. So <laughs> we've got one child yeah. until they come to the part where they say, "So, what does your daughter do now?" You know, and, and my response to that is, you know, she works for God. But then, mm. you know, it's it's it gets a bit deeper than that. So you know, we have to tell people mm. that she's passed mm. away, and you know, they're like genuinely, you know, mortified that I've just said <laughs> that. <laughs> is that because of the reaction that you don't want? to receive from people when you tell them the truth yeah i think i think the biggest thing is scotty is that when when i get taken back to that place you Mm. know people will know there's things that you see that you cannot unsee and seeing your own child lifeless you can't unsee it but when i get taken back to that place um what it effectively does is it makes me overwhelmingly sad Mm. and through that comes the tears Mm. And because I don't like crying because my nose gets really snotty, <laughs> therefore I have to keep blowing my nose. So I try my hardest not yeah. to get in that space, but that's that that's my resilience coming out. Yeah, yeah, because you know it's 
it's not just heartbreaking but you hit you why would you want other people to heartbreak with you yeah yeah and i try and avoid that as much as possible Mm-mm. so you named it the shameless pain a Māori mother's grief processing the effects of suicide. Why title it The Shameless Pain? When I first wrote that, I I struggled for a a heading and I thought I'd put down what I the first thing that came into my head. Mm. And I didn't want to be ashamed of what my daughter had done, you mm. know, and they, you hear the corridor about it being a cowardly act. There's nothing cowardly about taking your life and knowing that you can't come back from that, even if you change your mind at the mm, last second. Mm. So I I put that down as just a trigger for me mm. to try and sort out as I go through the motions of writing mm, what it mm. would be. Um, like I said, it was in the review state, so mm. they just, a shameless pain one is not a question. Yeah, yeah. But but it was how I felt at the time, so it was a shameless pain. I didn't feel the pain from shame from what had happened I just it was a numbing feeling Mm. for the first 24 hours and then you know getting advice from different people Mm. that you trust and love yeah in your publication you talk about the messages she sent you on Facebook uh, messenger the night before she died what happened there it was about 1 30 in the morning and I was still doing my um, assignment for my masters and she sent me a message and she said um love you mum Mm. which is not unusual Mm. but I did I had that gut feeling I should go downstairs and see if she's okay Mm. and I think I'll probably take this with me forever I decided not to because I was tired and I needed to get some sleep and I thought I'd pick it up but what I did was I forgot the next morning that I was supposed to ask her if she's okay but she didn't just send me that message she Mm. sent quite a few of the family that message right. over the night so she'd sent it to her dad her aunties her uncles her cousins mm. and and it was a message that she'd always sent so no one thought none the wiser, none the wiser. until we until she passed away then everybody came out with the messages mm. and um yeah that 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 was hard for me you yeah. know you, if you get a message like that and you, your gut tells you to go down get get your ass off the whatever the sofa or the mm. bed that you're in and just get down there and just to make sure they're okay well that's a good point because how do you how do you determine that instinct that has to make you act because i'm sure we all get little messages little feelings little thoughts that we aren't able to decipher sometimes it just something feels wrong or shoot I, I think I better go and do this but I'm not quite sure what it is how do we decipher that message it almost seems cryptic when you feel it a woman's intuition is so much more bigger and better than men's oh yeah it is <laughs> it's like oh that feels bad dear scratch my back <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like oh, yeah, I'll scratch it with a yeah. knife <laughs> you were warned <laughs> So how do people, when they start to get those messages, tune into that, respond straight away? Not just, I guess, like you're saying, with with some regret that you, because you were exhausted, you were tired, mm. you didn't, you know, you didn't. So how do how do we recognise it? Is there a way? I don't know. I, 
like you said, intuition is an intuition. You, you can't learn how to get intuitions. You just get them. Yeah. <laughs> but what should have been a big telltale sign to me was that message was sent after one o'clock in the morning. The mm. first thing you'd ask is, what are they doing up at one o'clock in the morning when mm. they've got uni the next morning? Mm. The second thing is... But is that part of student life, though? No. Well, they like to say it is, but it's not, mm. you know. True. Usually at that hour of the night, they're at downtown. Yeah, yeah, yeah true. Yeah. <laughs> and they're not studying. Yeah, yeah. But, but but for me, I should have, you know, like, I'm thinking about it. And at that hour of the morning, when you say, I love you, mum, why not send it at 12 o'clock in the, in the, in the afternoon, mm. you know, or one, uh, five o'clock in the evening? Why choose one o'clock in the morning when you're thinking about things? So, you know, you've got to unpack it all. But mm. we don't have time to unpack it when we're tired. Yeah, 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 totally. So, you know, unpacking it all, it's not the norms. It's not normal for you to send a message at one, two o'clock in the morning to tell your parents you love them. So that would be a key message from you is that the moment you feel that... Yeah, the act moment on it. Act on it. Don't wait. Yeah, don't don't be wrong. You know, don't think you're wasting your time. Even if there is nothing to worry about. Yeah, especially that's the best but, one to have nothing to worry about. Yeah. Oh, good point. Yeah. You rather have nothing to worry Absolutely. about because you've, you've gone and investigated it, yep. then you know be pissed off because you lost ten minutes worth of sleep. Yeah. Then, right. And then you have nothing. Full stop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> full stop. <laughs> Financially for her father and I, that is a blessing. <laughs> she really lived up to her name, Chanel. There was, no, there was nothing warehouse about that girl, I'll tell you. So true, man. Yeah, she, so wouldn't, she true. wouldn't have survived the COVID-19 lockdown. Because <laughs> she, she couldn't get to her stores. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder if God really does wear Prada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, which brings me to the next. Yeah, which brings me to the next thing because I struggled with faith. Mm. So after everything, yeah, how happened, does that work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, for for quite a while, I thought um, I I had an issue with God. Mm. The biggest issue, never, never looked at anybody else's issues with with their faith. That that wasn't right. my right. co-papa. But, you know, I did, I had an issue with God because, you know, as selfish as it sounds, and I think as a mother I can say this without having any repercussions. No, go for it. So as selfish as it sounds, I always think to myself, why did you take mine? Why didn't you take somebody else who had plenty of them mm. and one missing w- wouldn't have made a difference? But that's the selfish thinking yeah, of okay. me because one missing would make a difference whether you had 15 children or you had one wow. child. Yeah. So, you know, the the sacrifice you make as a parent, the you know, we never see our daughter go down the aisle. Not yeah. not not the not this aisle in this world. No. We never have grandchildren of our own to call our own and I you know, I love it. We yeah. do have grandchildren out there. Yeah. But I'm just saying from our own yeah, yeah. from our own fucker papa. Own, yeah, that's right. We'll never we'll never be able to experience that. And and it's almost torturous that we're staying in a world where we have to watch everybody else go through the awesomeness of having mm. children and we so do, we so do not like dislike Fano for that we we are envious and in awe that they get to have that experience yeah. they get to have the experience of you know being at the birth of their first moko, moko. you yeah. know and, yeah. and a lot of my generation now are starting to become grandparents yeah yeah and we have namesakes and Chanel has namesakes mm. and it, but they're all, they're out of arm's reach, yeah, if, yeah. if I can put it like that. 
You know, if I, we ha- we would have our muku every day. Oh, I don't know about Damien, but I would. I have them every day. Um, all our trips all mm, around the world, mm, you know. And mm. that's how I wanted, you know, to be that kind of grandparent. I'd, and I would have made an awesome grandmother, I reckon. Stay tuned for part two. An ugly pair of shoes, the soul to suicide.